Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. On April 5th, 2022, the Hydra was slain. And no, I'm not making a reference to the multi-headed water serpent from Greek mythology. I'm talking about the biggest darknet market that the world had ever seen. Well, thus far. Hydra was a Russian language platform that was an internet marketplace for some of the most dangerous drugs and malware around. It was also a haven for money laundering and stolen financial data. At the time of its takedown, Hydra was the venue for cryptocurrency transactions in the global darknet market landscape. 80% of it. More than $5.2 billion worth of crypto moved through this online space. And that's since its launch in 2015. On that April day, the Department of Justice announced that the servers hosting Hydra had been seized by the Bundeskriminalamt, basically the German equivalent of the FBI. But just like in the story of the mythical creature Hydra, the beheading of the eponymous Darknet market didn't spell the end. The Hydra market didn't reemerge in its old form. U.S. federal officials like Merrick Garland and Janet Yellen issued ominous warnings. Cybercriminals cannot hide on darknet forums anymore. Yet, most of Hydra's user base, vendors, buyers, and administrators, escaped prosecution. The digital shrapnel from its destruction, the vendors and users behind the platform, reoriented themselves into new darknet markets or migrated to existing ones. The Hydra takedown didn't mean the end of darknet markets. Far from it, it may have been another beginning. Which leaves us with the question, who can regulate the darknet? That's a very complex world of... The cyber criminals. The major players behind the darknet markets. These non-government actors doing foreign intelligence. Funds transfers. Money. Drugs. Laundered. Engaging in illicit activity. How do you actually investigate? In some ways, it's the ultimate asymmetric threat, right? Take a step with me into the darkest corners of the internet. Welcome to the first edition of Politico Tech. I'm Mohar Chatterjee. Think of me as your digital darknet Sherpa. When I found out about the so-called darknet markets, you could say I got a little obsessive. In fact, it's what I wrote my grad school thesis on. Anyway, I have questions. Like, what does this mean for privacy and anonymity and national security? So I'm looking at our strategy and examining the gaps, the pitfalls, the bureaucracy of the American offensive. Can we stay ahead of the global cybercrime threat? Depends on who you ask. That really depends on the target, the business vertical of the target or or geolocation. Darknet markets are bazaars for illicit goods like drugs, stolen consumer data, and other contraband, including malware. Anonymity for its users is the chief goal here. There's another product category that features prominently in darknet markets, and that's ransomware. Ransomware is a type of malware that takes the target's computing system hostage until the target pays a ransom. Most times, those ransom demands are for cold, hard crypto. Think WannaCry, 
The WannaCry cyber attack continues to claim victims across the globe, crippling many major business computer systems. JBS Meatpackers. It's another attack on critical infrastructure, this time the food supply. Heck, Costa Rica's National Health Services. Costa Rica has declared a state of emergency after a ransomware attack. Sounds very serious. Here's a hypothetical situation. You open up a Tor browser. You navigate to an Onion link for a darknet market of your choice. If the market allows you in, you find the ransomware that you want. You pay the vendor in crypto and finish the transaction. You then take the ransomware and deploy it against your target of choice. Simple, yes? But as any cybercriminal worth their salt will tell you, that's not how you do it. Because today's darknet markets are heavily monitored by law enforcement. These markets are just step one. Find a legit vendor for the illicit good or service you're looking for. The real deal-making often happens elsewhere, on closed forums littered throughout the dark web. If you're going to do it the right way, step two is negotiating in a private forum for the computing access or the product that you want. Where there's organizations that are, are looking at all the transactions and trying to see everywhere they can. And I think the threat actors know this, and that's why most of the really good stuff doesn't happen in an open forum that you can monitor. Adam Myers is the senior vice president of intelligence at CrowdStrike, a cybersecurity company that you may or may not know, but the Fed certainly do. He and his team are pretty busy tracking over 186 different cybercrime groups. You know, the way we think about it at CrowdStrike is we talk about threat actor motivation. And so the three motivations that almost every threat actor we track, and we track over 186 different named groups today, align with is there's nation state, which is engaged in espionage, sabotage, disruptive and destructive activity. So to recap, cyber criminals are trying to break into your computer and companies like CrowdStrike are trying to stay one step ahead. If you just have access to this darknet forum because you, you gave it an email or whatever it is, then then you could see these transactions, they happen deeper. They happen in foreign languages. They happen in closed circles. And, and you know, up, you know, think of this as a pyramid. As you move higher up the pyramid, there's better OPSEC. OPSEC is shorthand for operation security. The better cyber criminals are, meaning they're higher up on that pyramid Adam's talking about, the harder they are to talk to. And Adam has been in what you might call the VVIP sections of the darknet. And those conversations are more interesting, and you really have to use better tradecraft to get into them. So, you know, what we tend to see in a lot of these kind of public forums, or not public, but like open forums, would be a whole class of criminal that we call an access broker. And what an access broker does is they focus on just getting in. The access broker is exactly that. They sell access, a door into a sensitive computing system. They don't really want to run the ransomware operation. They don't want to spend a bunch of time and effort. They have a trick. They figure out how to compromise 30, 40 organizations. And then they sell that access on the forums to a criminal. Maybe it's an affiliate of a ransomware or something. And so now they have the access. And so that just did the first part of their job. Then they have to get the affiliate uh, you know, slot to get the ransomware or whatever it is. And then their only remaining job is to deploy that ransomware exfil the data and hand it off to the negotiation team. And then they just collect their 70 to 80% and they move on to the next one. So to put it simply, vendors like access brokers get to advertise their products on darknet markets. 
They negotiate with buyers on darknet forums. Ransomware groups then develop and deploy their malware through these entry points and collect the ransom. Everyone gets their cut and walks away satisfied. Except for the victims of the attack, of course. So, obviously, ransomware is a major problem. Like, when the targets are public utilities, governments, critical infrastructure. For example, they could tamper with the water treatment system for your grandma's retirement community in Florida. Or shut down the electricity grid in a mid-sized city in Texas. Or even kneecap a major gas pipeline, like the Colonial Pipeline, which is the largest refined oil pipeline in the U.S. In May 2021, a ransomware attack hit the pipeline's control systems, which forced the company to suspend operations until the situation was under control. It's one of the biggest pipelines in the country, making the attack a national security risk. The group responsible was an Eastern European cybercrime collective called DarkSide. Colonial Pipeline had to pay the cybercriminals roughly 75 Bitcoin to access the IT tools necessary to bring the system back online. 75 Bitcoin. That was about $5 million at the time. Most of these cybercriminal collectives aren't associated with state-sponsored hacking. The majority of these groups aren't ideologically motivated at all. But that might be beginning to change. The likelihood of darknet cybercrime becoming a real geopolitical threat continues to grow with each attack. The nation-state actors are beginning to rise. Here's Adam Myers again. Let's take nation-state as an example. If you're engaged in high-tech research, business negotiations that align with anything in the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, which is what would be in the Chinese sphere of influence, then espionage is a huge concern for you. You're likely to be targeted to have intellectual property stolen. And um, if you look at China, they have a, a number of really well-articulated plans for how they will steal information and what, what their espionage kind of roadmap looks like. That's the 14th five-year plan. That is the uh, Made in China 2025 initiative. That is the Belt and Road Initiative and the, the so-called Digital Silk Road. And it's also the 2049 kind of strategy. And so all of these things aligned, if you're in uh, various healthcare or cloud medicine or uh, high-speed rail, uh, you know, there's, there's a litany of things. But if you're in those businesses or adjacencies to those businesses, then you're likely to be targeted by China for espionage. And they're going to use that for economic espionage. If you are a state and local government, a healthcare provider, a uh, manufacturing or industrial uh, company, there's a whole uh, range of different business verticals where e-crime is probably going to be your biggest concern because ransomware threat actors have identified this calculus where they can say, okay, you can measure downtime in dollars and cents. So if I take you offline through a ransom attack, then I know at some point in time over the next couple of hours or days, the cost of being offline is going to be greater than my ransom demand. That intersection of cost and urgency is the sweet spot that cybercriminals seek. The ransomware target faces a tough choice. Can they afford to wait for some sort of solution to decrypt their system or retrieve their stolen data? Or do they just cough up the ransom money? When we look at espionage, whether it be Russia, China, North Korea, Iran, um, any number of nation states that we track conducting these types of operations, 
the problem there is that it's it's spreading, right? We're, we're seeing the proliferation of offensive cyber operations to more and more nation states. And I think COVID exasperated that because trying to move human assets, spies in and out of a border became very difficult during COVID. And so I think that that really became an attractive option for nation states that wanted to have better intelligence collection. So we've seen that kind of proliferating, but it hasn't you know, drastically changed, right? They're still using a lot of the same tools and techniques and tradecraft. These cyber criminal gangs primarily follow one of two business models. The first is a closed gang. The mafia would be a good example, right? When you think about like the different crews in the mafia, they've got closed crews. They don't deal with outsiders, right? They run their own schemes. They've got their own kind of ecosystem for, for running these, these types of uh, scams or whatever. The second type more closely resembles a legitimate software business. But you also have this ransomware as a service, which think about that as like a SaaS model where they build the platform, they build the encryptor, they build the backend ransom, uh, you know, demand uh, component negotiation platform. And then all you have to do is get in, use this platform to generate the revenue, and then you pay them a percentage off the top. So those are kind of the two models that we see, and we've seen that expand. Um, there's been new groups. There's been new ransomware-as-a-service platforms that have emerged. And for each one of those, there could be dozens of affiliates or more who are using that platform to conduct some sort of uh, you know, campaign or scam or operation. Um, that is starting to, you know, you might have heard about people talking about this so-called double extortion. And, you know, that's like, we've encrypted your files and we're also going to steal this data and leak it. And we're going to charge you one price to get your data back and one price to not releak it. Uh, and what we're starting to see is that more and more organizations are, are seeing that, that data extortion is actually the big driver. The cyber criminals are fairly resilient in carrying out their attacks and terrorizing citizens, businesses, and governments alike. They're like bad pennies. They keep turning up. Darknet markets, forums, and cybercrime collectives may lose a few players occasionally, but they're never out of the game entirely. These entities are ephemeral. They've gone through various reorganizations because criminals and law enforcement are constantly iterative. Just like the Hydra of Greek mythology, cutting off a head doesn't kill the beast. So what does this mean for the Watchers? the public and private entities tracking and trying to combat the darknet criminal underground. You need to understand who your adversary is. You need to understand how they're going to attack you. And you need to be able to craft your defenses to make you more resilient, really, at the end of the day. As malware and cybercrime attacks become increasingly frequent, regulators and law enforcement agencies work different angles to shut these platforms down. But that's next time on Politico Tech. I'm Mohar Chatterjee. Thanks for listening. <laughs>